got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to episode 96 of Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed. As always, I'm Tiffany Clark, the host of this here podcast, and today I've got a famous headline from a famous date in history for you, along with three lesser-known additional history stories that happened the same day, and one fun advertisement to end it all. The last couple of famous dates were fun ones, but that couldn't last forever, and unfortunately, I have a famous date for you that ended in death for many people. It was a day that some say had to happen, and some say should never have happened. Rather than try to debate the topic with myself, I'm just going to tell you the facts of the event. Our famous date is August 6, 1945, and I'm taking the headline from the Pittsburgh Press out of Pennsylvania. This giant, bold-lettered headline on the front page says, Secret Atom Bombs to Wipe Out Japan. Friends, August 6, 1945 was the day the United States dropped an atomic bomb on the city of Hiroshima in Japan. In a message released to the country by President Truman, he said, 16 hours ago, an American plane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima, an important Japanese army base. That bomb had more power than 20 tons of TNT. It had more than 2,000 times the blast power of the British Grand Slam, which is the largest bomb ever yet used in the history of warfare. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid manyfold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its powers has been loosed against those who brought warfare to the Far East. The President of the United States continued on, telling how developing ways of using atomic energy and weapons had been another unseen battle going on between German scientists and U.S. scientists. He said, The battle of the laboratories held fateful risks for us all, as the battles of the air, land, and sea, and we have now won the battle of the laboratories, as we have won the other battles. The president explained that the U.S. and Great Britain had been working together on the technology, and that they'd been doing so mostly on U.S. soil since Great Britain was constantly being attacked from the air, and the U.S. wasn't. They figured their project would be safer from attacks that way. One of the most common questions people ask when learning about the bomb being dropped on Hiroshima is how many people died. And according to AtomicArchive.com, that's a really hard number to come up with. For one thing, nobody knew for sure how many people were in Hiroshima before the attack in the first place. The censuses weren't complete. For another thing, the bomb caused fires to break out all over town, and some bodies were completely destroyed by those fires. For another thing, buildings that were usually organized and kept records, like hospitals, government agencies, police and fire departments, were wiped out by the bomb. And in the other chaos and confusion immediately following the blast, who knows who was coming and going? With that being said, it's estimated that 66,000 people were killed in the bombing, and another 69,000 were injured. 
Nearly 20,000 homes and buildings were destroyed, meaning livelihoods were destroyed too. Three days after the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, an atomic bomb was dropped on the city of Nagasaki, killing and injuring many thousands more. The hope was that by dropping the bombs, Japan would be forced to surrender and the war would come to an end. It worked, and the Japanese agreed to surrender just a few days after the second bomb was dropped. The official documents stating the terms of surrender were signed a few weeks later on September 2nd. Now, I could tell you a lot more about this event, like how the bomb was developed and more about the destruction afterward, but I'm not going to. Instead, I'm going to get right into our additional history stories. So, let's open up a paper and see what we can find. For my first additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from the Bradenton Herald out of Bradenton, Florida. This headline says, Detroit Orphanage Fire Costs Lives of Inmates. You can probably figure out, just by the headline, that this isn't a happy additional history story. First of all, I kind of hate that they use the term inmates to describe an orphanage. I know that technically the term can be used, but it just makes it sound like orphans have done something wrong, even though most of them are in that situation through no fault of their own. Second of all, this place wasn't just an orphanage. It was also a home for the elderly. The formal name of the home was the Evangelical Home for Orphans and Old People. I promise I didn't make that up. It's not clear whether the elderly that lived there were there because they wanted to live amongst others their age, or if they lived there because they were no longer able to care for themselves and needed others to help provide for their basic needs. If I had to guess, I'd guess the latter. As the headline suggests, this tragedy took place in Detroit, Michigan, the day before the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, making it so that two tragedies shared a front page in many newspapers across the country. That night, a couple of boys in the orphanage were playing with matches in the basement. That's where the laundry for the building was located. For whatever reason, there was a barrel full of flammable liquid nearby. The matches and their flames got a little too close to the barrel, and it exploded. Christine Lenth, who was 80 years old, Elizabeth Birch, who was 82 years old, and Ida Albrecht, who was 85 years old, all perished in the fire. In addition to the elderly who lost their lives, two of the young orphans died as well, Albert and Alfred Cade, twin brothers. They were just seven years old. At least one other woman, who was 90 years old, was critically injured, and at the time of the fire, they didn't know if she would make it. It's never specifically said which boys were playing with matches, but it's implied that the Cade brothers were responsible for the tragedy and for their own deaths. After the explosion, the woman who was in charge of the younger boys saw the two brothers running up the staircase leading from the basement, and both of them were on fire. She grabbed one of the boys and put the flames out on him. The supervisor for the older boys grabbed the other twin and put the fire out on him. Unfortunately, it was too late for either of the boys, and their injuries were just too severe to survive. By the time the fire on the boys was extinguished, the smoke coming from the burning basement was starting to fill the hallways. Panic spread through the building as the flames and smoke continued to increase. The children and elderly tried to flee, but there was a major problem. 
You see, many of those elderly were bedridden. They could not physically get themselves out of the building without help. Between the employees and the children and the elderly, there were nearly 200 people inside the Evangelical Home for Orphans and Old People. The employees of the orphanage began to evacuate as quickly as they could, and the firemen helped to carry out more of the elderly when they arrived. But unfortunately, not everyone made it out with their lives, as you heard. The firemen were able to put the fire out fairly quickly once they got the people out of the building, and most of the damage, minus the lives lost, was confined to the basement. I can imagine that the smoke damage to the upper floors was probably extensive, but that was rarely mentioned back then. I found a website that had an article talking about the orphanage fire. The comment section was filled with people saying that they were there the day it happened, or that they had lived in the orphanage at some point. They shared names of fellow orphans and teachers they liked, and descriptions of pictures they remembered seeing over the years. Now, I am very aware that people can say and post anything they want on the internet, even if it's not true, but I'm inclined to think that these personal stories are true, so I decided I'd share one of them with you so you can get a first-hand account of that awful night. One woman named Marilyn wrote, I, too, was in the orphanage when it had the fire. I was standing on the top stairwell that leads to the basement and the playground. It was a Sunday evening, and my mother was saying goodbye to us kids. She then goes on to list the names of her sibling at this point in the comment, but I'm not going to share the names. Anyway, she continues, I saw each twin ablaze. One was coming down the long corridor that passes the dining room, and the other twin was coming up the basement stairs. As a 12-year-old, that picture has forever been embedded in my memory. This has nothing to do with the fire, but I think the memory this woman shared says a lot about the way things were back then. Her mother was dropping her off at the orphanage. Did you catch that part? Did that mean they were being deserted and turned over the same night it happened? Or did it mean that their mother would come visit and sometimes take them out, but ultimately they lived in the orphanage? After telling the experience of the fire, Marilyn tells the name of the other orphans that she could remember being there with her. Then she said that when she was 13, she was taken from the orphanage by her father and sent to live with a couple as their live-in babysitter. How very sad. Now before I end this story, I thought I'd mention that the orphanage fire wasn't the only tragic fire in Detroit that month. It wasn't even the deadliest fire that month. Just a week or so after the orphanage fire, there was a fire at the Export Box and Sealer Company. A tank of some sort exploded and set off a fire inside the factory. Thirteen people died in that fire. Many of them were women who were working there because of the need for factory workers during the war. Besides those who died, at least 50 more were seriously injured and burned. It definitely wasn't a good time to be living in Detroit. For my second additional history story of the day, I decided to go with a story that's a little bit more fun. By this time in the war, people across the country had spent years reading story after story after story about the war. Many of the stories, or perhaps most of the stories, were about sad things, like battles and deaths and missing soldiers. I'm guessing that people were salivating for a positive story, because they ate this one up, and it was printed again and again and again in newspapers everywhere. 
It was talked about in the newspapers for months. So, just what is it that captured the hearts of the people? It was the story of an 18-year-old soldier. The headline from the Rhinelander Daily News out of Rhinelander, Wisconsin says, The feat tackles a problem. Then, the very short article is accompanied by a picture of a soldier laying on his bed with his feet up in the air and letters spread out all over him. The soldier is Private Phil Whelan from New York City, and at the time he was stationed at Fort McClellan in Anniston, Alabama. A couple of weeks before the article I'm featuring was printed, there was another one about him that was making the rounds. He'd written a letter and sent it into the base newspaper. He was complaining that it wasn't fair that men serving in the Air Corps could give fun names to their airplanes, usually names of girls, and that the men serving in the Navy got to Christian their ships with names too. He said that if he were part of a crew that drove a tank around, he'd still get to name something, like the men who drove the Lulubel tanks. Then he said, quote, But I ain't. I'm in the infantry. All I have to move around on is my feet. Is there any pretty girl who would like to have my feet named after them? If so, please address Private Phil Whelan. And then he goes on to give his address at the base. Phil started the whole thing as a joke of sorts, but people loved it. Girls from all over the country started sending letters to Phil, many of them accompanied by pictures. There was as many as a hundred letters coming in every single day. For an 18-year-old boy, it was a dream come true. He was in heaven. But after reading all of the letters from the girls who wrote to him, Phil Whelan said his choice was clear. He didn't want his pick to just be about looks, although that was important, and wanted his choice to mean something. He picked Patricia Lane. Patricia Lane lived in Washington, D.C. and had worked as a singer on the radio, as well as a singer in nightclubs. That meant a lot to Phil, because before he enlisted in the Army, or was drafted, I'm not sure which, he sang with the Johnny Long's dance band. As soon as he opened her letter, he yelled, She's it! He said, Now when I sing to my feet, they can chorus right back. I can't help but think that Patricia liked the attention she was getting, too. It definitely couldn't have hurt her career. Fast forward to September, and there's another article about Phil Whelan. By this time, he'd earned the nickname of The Foot, and people everywhere knew who he was. This time, he was in the headlines because Patricia Lane had traveled down to Alabama to meet Phil in person, and in honor of their meeting, and to make the christening of his feet official, he presented Patricia with a plaster cast of his foot. Yes, the gift that every girl dreams of. Then, another month later, Phil Whelan was in the news again. This time, someone had drawn the image of Phil Whelan laying on his bed with his feet in the air, surrounded by all those letters from the girls. It was a cartoon version of the real-life picture that was printed on August 6, 1945. There were still newspapers printing about Phil and his feet all the way into November. People loved it. Since Phil joined the army just weeks before the war officially ended, his chances of dying in the war like thousands of others weren't very high which was a good thing. I wanted to see if I could find out what happened to Phil later in his life, and I did find an obituary for him. And it sounds like his life turned out just the way he wanted. He was discharged from the army in 1946, and then stayed on in Japan to organize entertainment for the troops there. Then he went on to study music at the University of Miami, 
before going back to his home state of New York to perform with the Five Encores, a traveling swing group. Then, throughout the 1960s and 1970s, Phil was the guy who sang the national anthem at the New York Jets games with his orchestra, the Bob Cleveland Orchestra. And, during his life, he also got to perform with other notable people, like Bob Hope, Dinah Shore, Jimmy Durant, and Bing Crosby. Not bad for someone who first made the news as an 18-year-old boy because he wanted to name his feet after a pretty girl. For my last additional history story of the day, I decided to go with another feel-good story from the military. I first saw this article in the Cincinnati Inquirer out of Ohio. This article was accompanied by a big picture, too. It's a smiling woman standing over a smiling man in a hospital bed. She's feeding him a piece of cake. The headline says, Hensel is to get his farm. This is the story of a man named Master Sergeant Frederick Hensel. Frederick was born in Corbin, Kentucky, but he was currently a resident of the Percy Jones Army Hospital in Battle Creek, Michigan. He had just turned 27 years old. Most people in their 20s have a lot to look forward to in life. Their careers and families are just getting started, and life has endless possibilities. Frederick wanted those things too, except it wasn't going to be easy for him. You see, during the war, he lost parts of both of his legs and both of his arms. While out on patrol in Okinawa one day, he stepped on a landmine. Many men lost their lives during the war by doing the exact same thing, but somehow Frederick survived the terror. One source said that Frederick was the first and only quadruplicate amputee in all of World War II, but I couldn't find anything substantial to back that up, so it might not be completely true. Frederick was staying in the hospital while he learned to use his new limbs. One picture in another article shows him learning to shave with the hook on his arm. He also learned things like how to use a pen or pencil with his hooks, how to hold a cigarette, how to use a knife and fork, and even how to tie his own necktie with his hooks. Some people struggle with tying their own tie even if both arms are fully functional. Anyway, one of the newspaper articles about Frederick was actually an article about his wife, Jewel. She spent all the time that she possibly could at the hospital helping her husband adjust to his new normal. The doctors and the other soldiers in the hospital loved that Jewel spent so much time by her husband's side because they knew that he would heal a lot faster because of her support. They pointed out that other wives didn't always come by that much. Other women couldn't handle seeing their loved ones or the other soldiers suffering. When Jewel found out that the other women didn't support their husbands, she was shocked. She said, I didn't know there were wives like that. I don't see why there should be. They are the same men who went away. Inside, they haven't changed a bit. You marry for better or worse, don't you? And when you have trouble, you have to do it together. She later said that it wasn't about her and that her husband was the one suffering, and that's why she was giving her attention to him rather than herself. She also said that sometimes bad things happen, and it's just the way life is. You have to make the best of things no matter what you're dealt. Doesn't Jewel sound like a great person? I think so. Frederick's wife wasn't the only person impressed with his efforts to keep fighting. 
His army buddies said he was, quote, the bravest man of this war. Frederick was actually an orphan and was raised by some of his relatives on a farm in Kentucky. Joel was raised on a Kentucky farm, too. After his injury, they decided they had one simple wish. They wanted to go back to Kentucky and start their own chicken farm. That was it. Just something simple. After word got out about Frederick Hensel's accident and his wish to start a farm, people all over the country started sending money. It was an early GoFundMe account. They were proud of their veterans and the sacrifices so many of them made for the country, and they wanted to give back. The donations added up and added up and grew and grew until the Hensels had received at least $16,000. Now, in this day and age of GoFundMe accounts, that may not seem like a whole lot and definitely not enough to start a farm. But $1,945 aren't the same as $21. That same amount today would be nearly $250,000. The couple was going to get their farm. It was the perfect gift for their third wedding anniversary that was coming up the week after our article was written. Frederick was released from the hospital in May of 1946, almost an entire year after his June 1945 accident. He and Joel were headed to Birmingham, where they'd already bought a 143-acre chicken farm. A picture in the paper later showed a very smiley Frederick driving a tractor that had been specially equipped just for him. Jewel passed away in 1987, but Frederick continued on without her for 10 more years, passing away in 1997. For today's advertisement, I'm taking an ad from The Monitor out of McAllen, Texas. This is an ad for socks. It says, Please don't be misled. It's not the leg on the guy but that beautiful pair of socks that catches the slick chick's eye. The ad is accompanied by a cartoon picture of a woman in a car staring at a man standing on the side of the road with his pants pulled up, showing off his socks. The ad then ends by saying, You can always tell when he bought it at the man shop. Friends, I hope you enjoyed today's episode, even though the main event wasn't exactly a happy one. Check out the additional history headlines you probably missed Facebook group for more info about some of the stuff I shared in today's episode. Then, join me again next Monday for an all-new episode. You'll have to tune in to know what that one will be about. Talk to you later.